thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, that's me, and also here is Dave Ansell. Hi Dave. Hi there. And Helen Scales. Hello. Now coming up this week, we'll be finding out why the pill is bad for your pocket, at least if you're a lap dancer. Also, how scientists have come up with a clever way to beat cosmic radiation during long space voyages. How crocodiles actually cry real tears, not crocodile tears. And why buying expensive trainers could take you down the road to ruin. So that's all on the way. And also this week, we're looking at how Hollywood has a major rival, a new technology called, rather interestingly, machinima. These are films made, but instead of using physical puppets, what you use are the characters in computer games. So instead of picking up Big Bird or whatever the puppet of choice is, you go and turn on your Xbox or your PlayStation and use the characters in the game. So more on how people are making their own movies using their computer games coming up later on. And in this week's Kitchen Science, I'll be building a detector for the Earth's magnetic field. And if you want to have a go too, grab a glass bowl, some water, a magnet, a needle and something that floats like a flat piece of polystyrene. And Dave will tell you what to do with all of that later on in the programme. This is, of course, our question and answer show. So any question you like and we'll try and answer it for you. We're also going to be looking at very shortly whether when, if you're on your bike riding along and you get hit by lightning, unfortunately enough, the tyres of the bike would be enough to protect you. That's coming up. If you've got any questions like that... Chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. So, Dave, what have you had your eye on this week? Well, this week I noticed that some engineers think the best shape for a spaceship may look like a table decoration. <laughs> eh? <laughs> well, now, one of the major threats for astronauts, if they're going a long way in space, if you're going beyond low orbit, is called cosmic rays. Now, these are really high-energy particles originating from outside the solar system. They're coming at nearly the speed of light, and they can really damage the astronauts. They can give them cancer, radiation sickness, all sorts of bad things. Is this what pe- when people say the Van Allen belt and things like that? Is that what they're talking about? Um, the Van Allen belt is a radiation belt that's mostly coming from the sun, um, but the similar idea, high-energy particles, which will hit you, um, that's concentrated around the Earth in some belts, um, hit you, give, make, give you radiation sickness and make you very ill. So is this viewed as a major impediment to doing long space missions, like President Bush's plan? to get to Mars in the next 40 years or so. Yes, because, I mean, the odds are, I think it's just sort of above, it's sort of, um, the odds are sort of quite high odds that if an astronaut gets hit by a particularly bad set of cosmic rays or radiation from the sun, by the time they get to Mars, they'll be so ill, there'll be no point in sending them at all. So why don't scientists and astronauts who go into space at the moment end up with problems related to radiation exposure, or do they? Um, At the moment, because you're, they're in low Earth orbit, they're so low that the radiation is actually caught by the Earth's magnetic field and it piles into the north and south poles and so they're protected from it. But as soon as you go beyond the, the Earth's magnetic field, it suddenly gets very dangerous. Now, an engineer called Ron Tripali um, from the Langley Research Centre in Virginia may have a solution. Um, he wants to make the space station look like one of those table decorations where you get a pineapple, stick a load of cocktail sticks into it um, with um, cherries on the end of it. 
So his idea is if you make these things which look, look like cherries on the end of it, really high voltage, so you make one of them really positive, the next one really negative, the next one really positive, then if a cosmic ray comes in, it'll suddenly get attracted. If it's positive, it'll get attracted to the ne- negative one. If it's negative, it'll get attracted to the positive one. And it will, therefore, it'll hit these um, spheres rather than the astronauts inside the spaceship. How do they propose to power that? Because it sounds like such a system could be quite energy hungry. Um, because space doesn't conduct electricity very well, you can get a very, very large voltage and it will stay there. So you, pro- you would need to keep pumping energy in, but not too far. So probably just solar power. You'll need a lot of power to run that kind of spaceship anyway because you've got to run to keep the people living. You've got to probably have to have some way of regenerating oxygen. Are they going to test this thing? Um, it's still obviously very much on the drawing board, but maybe by the time they get, go, go to Mars, it might be the design of the spaceships. Well, back down to Earth now, and in fact down to Earth in a very big way, to a lap dancing club. Talk about land on your feet. Uh, this is a research, a piece of research by Jeffrey Miller. He's based at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and he's interested in studying the concept of human oestrus. Now, oestrus is, in the mammalian world, a time when a female becomes sexually receptive. In other words, they're likely to get pregnant if you have sex with them. And pretty much all animals display this time when they come on heat, except humans, which had led people to conclude that evolution had in some way weeded out the process of oestrus in humans and that we just have this natural menstrual cycle and at some point in that menstrual cycle you're very fertile and you can get pregnant if you have sex then. So what these guys wanted to find out was whether actually it really does exist and women are sending out signals that men respond to subconsciously and that in fact this will um, affect the behaviour of the men in some way that you can measure and so they decided to go to a bunch of lap dancing clubs and they recruited 18 women who were in these clubs and they asked them to keep a diary over 60 days of how much they earned in tips and they broke the women down into two groups they had women who were taking the pill and women who were taking no contraception they were just um, using normal menstrual cycles and what they found really interestingly was the women who were on the pill had about $200 coming in in tips per shift that they worked and the women who were not on the pill at around the time when they were most fertile, earned $350 per shift. So their earnings nearly doubled. And at the end of their cycle and at the beginning of their cycle, they earned roughly the same as the women on the pill. So this sort of says it's not because they were much prettier than the women who are on the pill. It's because something else was going on. And they're saying this is very strong evidence that, economically speaking, at least is the first objective evidence that men will respond to these signals coming out from women. The women weren't aware that they were taking part in a study to, to see how women affect men's behaviour, but it looks like there's some kind of signal that, that the women are giving out. Now, whether that's in the way the women dance, whether it's in the way they make themselves look, whether it's in the way that they secrete various chemicals that the men respond to, we don't know. But men were much more generous with their tips to women when they were at their most fertile, suggesting that the men valued the women and therefore valued them potentially in in terms of what they could get out of those women, i.e. making them pregnant, at certain times of the month, which is intriguing. Women are affecting our behaviour, Dave. I I can believe it in one way or another. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Well, it's not rocket science, everyone knew that, but Helen. I think that's great, and maybe that's a new technique for earning more money. Anyway, I'm not allowed to So go for the job interview when you're on day 14. (laughs) (laughs) But 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 if you take the pill, basically, you won't earn as much, because you're not not having this natural surge in attractiveness at uh, your fertile period, because there isn't one. Absolutely. Anyway, I shall move on swiftly. There's an old myth that crocodiles cry in fake remorse when they're devouring a meal, which is why we say that someone is crying crocodile tears when they're being insincerely turning on their waterworks. But it turns out that crocodiles really do weep when they're eating, but surely not because they're feeling emotional. And a rather interesting thing that triggered this study, which I'm going to tell you about, comes from a condition in humans known as crocodile tears, which is when people actually cry when they eat. 
And uh, so the I've never heard of this. Obviously, yeah. you go out and have a very hot curry. Well, I think yeah, your nose runs and everything. But no, I think this is so this a, is different. This is a different condition which we really don't understand, and people who actually do cry when they eat. Um, so scientists. They've obviously well tasted as, my wife's cooking. No, only joking. Oh, no, she she's a good cook. Cakes. She's a good she cook. Makes great cakes. But these, this uh, team of scientists from the University of Florida wanted to have a look and get to the bottom of whether or not crocodiles really do shed tears, um, as they seem to, because uh, up until now it's been really difficult to study, as you might imagine. Crocodiles spend an awful lot of time in the water. And you might have noticed they're rather feisty and big creatures. And I don't know about you, but I don't really want to try teaching a crocodile to eat its meal on land instead of in the water. So instead of looking at the big crocs, scientists actually, and um, this team actually decided to look at um, a slightly um, related group of creatures, um, the uh, smaller uh, reptiles, caimans and alligators, which are closely related to crocodiles. Um, but they, you can teach these guys to feed on land, and that's what they did in the zoo in Florida. And so their researchers basically saw these caimans and alligators were crying when they were tucking into a meal, and some of them even bubbled and frothed quite ferociously from their eyes, confirming that up until now what's just been anecdotally reported um, as weeping diners. And now there are a couple of possible explanations for why tears are shed by these caimans and alligators while they're eating. It could be linked to the hissing and huffing behaviour. Apparently that's what they get up to when they eat um, in a kind of maybe sort of telling other crocodiles to go away while, you know, they're busy Hiss tucking off. in. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and by forcing the air through their sinuses um, in this behaviour, maybe it's stimulating the production of fluid in the lacrimal glands or the tear glands. And it's also possible that even the mechanical action of biting down on their food causes the muscles to squeeze tears out of the tear glands. But um, another thing is, just like human tears, crocodile tears um, are likely to have a protective role, and that's why we, we tend to cry. Um, or at least why, uh, you know, our, our, our eyes are moist. So it could be that, well, they're feeding crocodiles are kind of thrashing around you know trying to catch prey and it's all quite active so maybe this these tears are just a kind of way of helping to keep their eyes moist and protected from uh, getting damaged but anyway there you go crocodiles really do cry tears oh how sweet i know isn't that lovely now rather surprisingly particle physicists may be helping foresters by finding their fires for them now this year forest fires have been a particularly in the news with the big, great big fires in Greece which have killed at least 64 people and done nearly a billion pounds worth you of damage. You didn't need much help to find them did you? No those were, they were big. Now once the fires got that big it's almost impossible to stop unless the weather changes or the wind changes direction or it starts raining um, and so the, the trick is to catch it while it's small enough that you can actually fight the thing. Now satellites can find fires which are larger than 30 acres but this is, um, and by looking for the smoke you can get a little bit smaller than that but if it's got to 30 acres it's not going to be very easy to put out so vladimir peskov and antonia zitinci have been developing ultraviolet sensors for the large hadron collider at cern um now these are to detect light given off by particles coming out of the huge collisions in the, in the which is going to occur in the large hadron collider to find out things about the very early universe and that some, when these particles go through the detectors, they emit light um, at the side. And this is, a lot of this is in the form of ultraviolet light. And so they've been de- created detectors which are a thousand times more sensitive than anything else available commercially. But do fires produce ultraviolet then? Um, flames do, in fact, produce a little bit, some ultraviolet. Um, and it's probably quite a good detector because nothing else on the ground really normally does produ- produce ultraviolet. So you can be fairly sure it's not just some, a hot car or a, or a reflection of the sun. Um, and so he he can detect a, a little light flame from a lighter from like 25, 30 metres away. And so if, if so, his idea is he put lots of these detectors on towers in places you think you might have fires and you can take them much smaller. Firefighters can 
say, ah, oh, we know there's a fire, we can get there while it's still manageable, put the fire out, you don't have a problem. Why do you need to use ultraviolet? Why couldn't you just use, say, infrared? Because fires produce lots of that. I think possibly it's um, useful because um, other things, if it's just something that's very, very hot in the sun, you can get up to 78 degrees centigrade, which might detect your, trigger your detector. And so it's kind of, especially if you've got infrared detectors there as well, and if it's using infrared and ultraviolet, you're pretty sure that it's going to be a fire. That sounds intriguing. Amazing to say what the spin-off of something like the Large Hadron Collider could be. And incidentally, we'll be talking about the Large Hadron Collider on next week's Naked Scientist. We'll be exploring what kinds of questions about the origins of the universe it's going to tell us about. Now, uh, interestingly, talking about things that are very, very small, not quite as small as the particles in the Hadron Collider, but ants. There's a really interesting study been published in the journal Animal Behaviour this month, and a guy in Poland called David Moron has been looking at how ants know how old they are. They seem to have a best-before date, which is plumbed into them. So they know, or they have a firm grasp of their own mortality, put it that way. Because what he did was to take ants from their colonies and make little injuries in them, or put them in a chamber and expose them to carbon dioxide for a while, which ages their nervous system. And then he put them back into their nests, and he'd mark them so he could see which ones were which. And he found that the ants that are much older, been artificially aged, started doing jobs that were more high-risk in the colony compared with ants that were much younger or the same age as them. Because normally in a colony, you, you use your young ants uh, in a very sparing way. You keep them inside the nest where they're out of harm's way because they're precious to you. But once an ant gets old, it's clapped out, it's going to die soon anyway, then you let them do the risky jobs because they're less of a loss to your nest if they go out and get lost. And all these young ants that had injuries started doing the jobs of old ants much sooner and much, much sooner than the uninjured ants of the same age in the nest. And so they think that ants have a grasp of how long they're going to live and they know this and they therefore think, right, my number's almost up, I'll go out and do the risky jobs because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop my cork pretty soon anyway. I guess we have got no idea how they figure that out for themselves, how the ants actually... Can they not have birthday parties or They don't know that yet, but the really important thing is there are lots of other social insects, including bees and wasps, that seem to do a very similar thing and have similar behaviours. So this is going to answer a lot of intriguing questions about how they do that. That sounds awesome. I've actually got another animal age story here, but uh, first I'd just like to take a minute, excuse me, to paint a rather charming picture in your minds. Come with me if you'd like. Imagine you're sitting on a beach on the south coast of Australia with your eyes and nose filled with the sounds and smells of waves crashing in the distance. Are you there with me? Good. But you're not alone, and a gaggle of fairy penguins come hopping and waddling past you as they make their way down to the sea to go feeding for the day. Now, these are the smallest of the world's penguins, and they're only just about a foot tall. And instead of dashing down the beach in one great big group, they actually break up into smaller groups of about five to ten penguins to help avoid being snapped up by predators. Now, this lovely scene um, was what a team of scientists saw at the Phillip Island Nature Park in Victoria, Australia, and it got them wondering whether the birds form these groups randomly or whether penguins selectively choose particular fishing buddies, a bit like kids picking teams in a school playground for a game of football. Now, the way they did this, the scientists monitored the movements of these individual penguins for four years using what I think sounds marvellous, an automated penguin monitoring system, which sounds great, <laughs> and is actually involves placing little electronic microchips under their skin so you can actually follow the movements of individual penguins. And they found that penguins do indeed tend to team up with the same penguins to go out fishing and they come back with their same friends. Um, and perhaps that's because it helps them to team team up into uh, groups which share knowledge of particular fishing sites so they go out and they know where they're going. But the other interesting thing which links back to the age thing is it tended to only be the middle-aged penguins that did this and the old ones and the younger ones 
basically aren't as good at fishing and so they never get picked for these little teams <laughs> and they unfair, just kind of go with ages. whoever's there so it is a bit ageist um, and also this kind of pattern of having favourite people uh, favourite penguins to go fishing with only happened in good years when there was lots of food and there were lots of chicks being reared in bad years when food was less abundant it seems that the penguins are a bit more up for just going out on their own or or basically not cooperating as much and just kind of off off to get food as much as they can um, so in that sort that's it they leave the um, they leave the young ones and the old ones behind all just to kind of do their own thing but I thought that was rather nice I hope you enjoyed my picture of the South Australian coast so what humans can learn from penguins or seem to have already done by the look of it this is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris Dr Helen and Dr Dave uh, in a second we'll be finding out why a very expensive pair of trainers could lead you on the road to ruin and also we'll be finding out what happens if you put an ant in a microwave we've talked about ants already well we've got uh, Andrew he's on the phone he wants to know the answer Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Chris. Now, now what's your question? Right, I was hearing recently that a study's been done that shows that ants can survive in a microwave by finding the coolest parts, but... I wondered if this was actually true, or is it like the one about the cockroaches well, if it's a giant... nuclear explosions, which I believe isn't true? So... Well, I'll tell you what, Andrew, we had a person who wrote to us the other week who said, I found a cockroach crawling around in my microwave, so don't eat in their kitchen, basically, and they said that just for fun, um, they turned on the microwave to, to zap him, and they opened the door 30 seconds later, and he was still crawling around. So it, I think it's probably because of the wavelength, isn't it, Dave? Yeah, because in a microwave, um, you've got microwaves coming out from the right-hand side, and they bounce off the metal at the far side. It acts like a mirror, and they bounce backwards and forwards, and they form what's called a standing wave. And you get areas of the microwave which are very, very hot, which have got very, very powerful microwaves, and others which with virtually with approximately nothing at all. And what's the distance between those hotspots? They're about sort of seven and a half centimetres in between them. And so you get sort of four or five hotspots in your microwave, depending how big it is. So if Andy's ant or the other person's cockroach was crawling around and they happened to stay in a, a, a narrow area about three centimetres of where the waves are weakest, then they could potentially escape. Yeah, and they'd also feel, it would just feel to them, if they're in a hot, hot spot, it would just feel like it was a very, very hot place, and so they'd naturally want to get away from it to somewhere cooler. And so I could, I could definitely imagine that that sounds entirely reasonable. They'll just walk to a somewhere cooler where they feel a lot more comfortable and just sit there and they'll be fine. It'd be more interesting if there's a turntable, because the turntable's there to move you through the hot and to move the food through the hot and cold sub spots all the time, so they'd have to keep walking around the turntable to avoid getting cooked. I was, I was just going to say, if, what happens if there's a turntable? They have to work out that they don't. Um, they, they must go in the opposite direction. Andy, it looks like the answer is that uh, animals can survive being in the microwave. Right. <laughs> so it's not a myth after all. Um, there was somebody who made their way into the newspapers for all the wrong reason, and they didn't survive, actually. Um, they decided, because they were in a rush to go out for a date, and they had wet hair, they would put their head in the microwave oh, and dry God. their hair quickly. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't survive the experience, but their hair looked great afterwards. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Thank you, Chris. If you'd like to ask us any science questions, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Dave, got a very quick one for you here before we find out about these trainers. It's from Andrew Dawson, and he says he was cycling around on Frodsham marches, marshes, and he was listening to us on his iPod, actually. He said it was a thundery day, um, and then as he was going along, he suddenly remembered the story we talked about, me and Helen, um, a couple of months ago, when it was a guy who got hit by lightning. He was wearing his iPod, and it directed the lightning up into his ears. So he got a bit nervous at that point, and he said... 
uh, he began to wonder whether his bike would protect him in the same way as being in a car protects you from a stroke of lightning. And he's saying, would my bike tyres protect me? And also, would it work like a Faraday cage? Well, the way a car protects you is very is um, not because the tyres are insulating, so the, the lightning wasn't go, won't go through it. It's because you're surrounded by steel, which conducts electricity much better than you do. So, any if the lightning hits it, the current's going to want to go through the steel much more than it's going to want to go through you. So, the current just goes around you, and you're absolutely fine in the middle. And um, this is a fact called is called a Faraday cage, as he was talking about. But if you're sitting on a bike, you're not surrounded by metal. So, in fact, probably the bike's going to make it worse because it's going to produce a very nice um, conductive path from you from your head through your arms through the bike down into the ground very easily so even though the tires are rubber i think even though the tires are rubber they're only sort of maybe an inch across so the voltage needed to put a spark across that isn't very large especially if they're damp as well yeah the spark has already flown sort of 500 meters through the sky another inch at the ground isn't going to be too much of a problem so the bottom line is that you're advertising yourself for a strike if you're cycling around on a bike in frodsham marshes or wherever you're cycling around there's a thunderstorm yeah. iPod or no iPod. <laughs> iPod or no iPod. Uh, in, a bi- in a car, great. On a bike, not. Thanks, Dave. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. It's The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Helen. If you'd like to ask us any science questions, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, we had a question a while ago, which was, why do cooked plums taste bitter? And we've had an answer here uh, from Colleen uh, in Michigan. Uh, she has given us a, an explanation for why this might be. So if you want to keep with me, this is actually slightly more complicated than we thought it would be. But she says, this is her idea anyway, that she suspects it's due to the breakdown of sugars that give that bitter taste. And then when you're cooking the sugars at high heat, you get non-enzymatic browning, which occurs either through caramelisation or something called the Maillard reaction. Now, that is an interaction of proteins and sugars. And the free amino group of a protein reacts with the carbonyl group of the sugar, which is basically chemistry and producing something called N-glycosylamine. And this is unstable and basically is a downstream product. It breaks down into something called the melanoidins, um, which can be bitter to taste. But um, the reactions are actually really complex, she says, and are not well understood. So um, it could be all sorts of different reasons. And that might be why cooking, she says, is so much of an art. So thank you very much for that um, explanation. I don't know if anyone else has any other ideas of why fruit might I had actually wondered why you eat a plum and it's really sweet and then you cook it and it gets very, very sour. And we just didn't have a clue. Mm. So thank you very much to Colleen for that. Now, there's a very interesting study been done this week and to join us to talk about it is Professor Rami Aboud. Um, hello, Rami. How are you? Hi, good evening. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Now, uh, people think that the more you spend on a pair of trainers, uh, the better they're going to be for you in terms of your sporting prowess. But you're saying that's not the case. Well, that's what we found in the study that we have conducted. And this is a part of a bigger study, in fact. So the paper that got published at the British Journal of Sports Medicine It's only a small part of a a much bigger study that has started some five years ago. Now, what we've done with this study is we have taken three brands, and in each brand we have taken low, medium, and high-cost running shoes, and we've compared these three within the same brand. And what we've used for that, we've used a system called Pedar that has uh, electronic insoles, each with 99 sensors, capable of measuring the pressure between the trainers and the plantar surface of the foot. And then we compared the outcome between the different uh, price tags within each brand and then across the brands. And what we found is that the medium cost and the low cost running shoes are as good as the most expensive one, if not better, within the categories that we have chosen. Now, you chose quite a a sort of narrow price banding, if I may say so. I mean, 
a 30 quid for a pair of trainers, I think, in my book, is still quite expensive. I go and buy the tenor variety. Um, so what do you think would happen if you bought the really cheap trainers? Well, what we, what we have done is we looked at the branded names. Now, this is one thing that we have not done is by looking at the non-branded ones. We've looked at the branded ones, and we have actually covered the price tag from £30 to £150. But this paper that got published now is only covering the 40 to 75 bracket. Okay, so the bottom line is don't waste money on some really expensive trainers because there's no benefit to your bones through doing that. Well, the effect of cushioning that we found, as I said, in the low and medium was as good as the most expensive that from the one that we tested. Um, what I would advise the consumers is to buy is the trainer that is going to fit length and width and has to be comfortable for them. The shoes have to conform to their feet, and that should be irrespective of the price tag. Now, if someone is going to tell me that some of the higher end has uh, support more than lower brand, I would dispute that because within the branded names, there are, at the lower end as well, support available for the feet. So you should go what is best for your feet, irrespective of the price tag. So how do these big-name brands get away with telling us we should be parting with £100 for a set of trainers when actually your clinical evidence says that there's no benefit of doing that? Well, I think that's a question that should go to the manufacturers. But do you, do you think, therefore, that will, will you be sending them a copy of this paper? Because well, I think it's very important. Is, is, They're obviously ripping people off, aren't they? Well, this paper is available for anybody to download for, for, from the journal. And we have, as I said, we have done extensive studies on these trainers, and that's why now we decided to send them one after the other. So there's going to be a series of papers coming out throughout this year uh, covering endurance, covering uh, how long would they go the extra mile and so forth. Um, so it, it has been a, a comprehensive study, not only using in-shoe pressure devices, we even used accelerometers to look at this effect, to look at the shock wave. OK, well, thank you very much for telling us about that, Rami. Pleasure. That's Professor Rami Aboud. He's from Nine Walls Hospital and Medical School at the University of Dundee. I've got an email here from Tommy Sanders in Washington, and he... Says he loves the show. Thanks very much, Tommy. That's fantastic. And he has a question. Um, apparently, some of his friends think he's a little bit strange, and he thinks maybe this is true. But we will reserve judgment. We're supposed on that. to answer on that. <clears throat> well, wait till you hear his question, and then we can decide. Um, he says basically, when his cell phone is on vibrate. It rings, and it rings. He feels it in the opposite leg than the pocket it is in. Presumably he's wearing it in his trousers or pants, as you would uh, call them in, in the States. And so whenever he gets a call and feels a vibration, say, in his left leg, he's learnt to reach into his right pocket for his phone and vice versa. Why does this happen? I don't find that at all surprising because I have almost the same thing. So you're um, strange too. It sounds really odd to me. Not have you only I just realised that... <laughs> I wouldn't like to say. I wouldn't like to say, Chris. But um, no, I don't have this uh, with my leg. Oh, um, but right. what I have got is on the outside edge of each elbow. If I pinch my outer skin of my elbow, I feel uh, the pain at the same time as on my elbow. I feel a strip of flesh on my trunk. About if I laid my arm down by my side, where my elbow would be on the side of my trunk, I feel that hurting there too on both sides. And this is interesting. It's a sort of miswiring in the nervous system. And I think it's got an embryological basis to it. Because when the body develops, you start off as this flat plate of cells. And you that then rolls up into a tube. And it's split up into segments, a bit like a centipede. Well, we're very similar. We have segments to our body. And some of those segments are specialised. And two segments produce arms at the top. And two segments down below produce legs. And so they bud, bud out from that segment of the body. And they pull the nerve supply to that segment with them. Them. And so you end up with this sort of extension of your nervous system down into the two limbs, upper 
and lower. And that then goes up into the nervous system and informs your spinal cord as to what's going on in that bit of the body. But it's possible, I suppose, that some of the nerves, as well as being connected to the hand and the spinal cord area, encoding the hand could also be rooted to the original bit of the body that that bulge came out of so i suspect there's a sort of crossover going on in his nervous system where something has not crossed properly and the nerves from one side of the body are triggering nerves for the other side of the body it's a sort of referred sensation phenomenon could it have anything to do with reflexology and sort of the idea of massaging points in your feet and having effects on the rest of your body i don't really want to get into a whole discussion about alternative medicines but i just wondered if you think there's anything to do with that um, I don't know. I think this is different because this is this is obviously something which is a variant of normal, mm. uh, as you might say when talking about me. But um, I, I'm not sure that that's exactly the basis of reflexology. But the point about reflexology is that if you stimulate certain bits of the body, what you're going to be doing is having an impact on other parts of the body. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if there's any evidence, physiologically speaking, if you were to measure on the brain surface, stimulating my foot would do a certain bit of my back or something. I don't think there's any evidence people can find that. But the fact is it's relaxed it's uh, got a very strong placebo effect associated with it it's got a positive feeling associated with it people feel good if they do this so if it makes people feel better I think it's a very good thing Absolutely, Quite. Uh, Dave, we've got a question here Douglas um, near South End on Sea has phoned in and said my compass points to north wherever I am on Earth so what will happen if I go into space? Um, basically it depends where you are in space um, you may have played with a magnet when you were a kid um, and some iron filings under a piece of paper you'll remember that you'll see basically you'll be seeing something which looks very like the magnetic field produced by a magnet uh, from a magnet it sort of comes out from the north pole it kind of curves around in two big ovals and comes back upwards at the south pole um, and we, we we on the surface of the um, earth see that field and so where we are it's, it's going sort of from the south pole towards the north pole to the, mag to the compass points north if you are straight above the north pole it will actually be pointing straight downwards and straight at the South Pole, it would point straight upwards. Now, if you're out into space, depending where you are, you'll have the same thing. So it depends where you are. If you're above the equator, it will sort of be pointing essentially north-south. If you're above the north and south pole, it will be pointing straight down. The further away you get, the weaker it will get until you're so far away that the sun's magnetic field will overwhelm it. So if you were to fly around the world in a sort of geosynchronous way, so you're parallel to the equator and going around the same rate as the Earth, it should still point north-south. Yeah, it will sort of but point. But if you were to do an orbit pole-to-pole, -pole, like some of the weather satellites do... Would it get confused as it went over the North Pole then? It will sort of, so it'll be pointing north-south when you're above the equator. It will point straight down the North, straight down at the North Pole, and then it will turn all the way over. So it'll be rotating sort of over and over and over its head, as it were, as you go around. So you couldn't navigate with a compass in space. Um, you could in a few circumstances, but in general, no. You might get quite lost. So how do spaceships find their way around in space? Um, mostly they get their direction by looking at the stars. So they, the, north, the North Star is always in the same direction, so you look where the North Star is and you know which direction you're pointing. It seems ironic to think that you can put someone on the moon and we're resorting to the same techniques people have used for thousands of years to find your way around up there. If it works, why change it? Helen, got a question here from uh, Terence Hale. He's in Zandvoort. I hope I've said that right. It's a Dutch municipality, and he says he runs a guest house he says in my garden which is ex which is quite exposed i find spiders and and webs in places where there's no access between point a and point b where they've made their web and i've even put cameras up to see how they do it and i just can't catch them in the act so how do they get across these big gaps to make these webs well, if you think about it, most spiders are kind of are, are pulling their webs between two different points. And, and uh, you know, maybe I suppose they, you could imagine they might kind of climb across the top if there was a branch there. But actually what they do is they, they will produce a very light and sort of floaty piece of silk um, from their spinnerets and sort of just 
just wave it out in the breeze and hope that um, it will actually stick onto somewhere else, a bit further away, where it can start building its web. So it's all a bit chancy, really. It's not really a sort of determined thing. Um, it's just sort of, uh, you know, they'll wait and see what happens and wherever they land, if it's the right one, they'll go for that. And so once that first little thin line has sort of stuck on, they'll climb along it and reinforce that first sort of uh, strut, if you like. And then they actually use their own bodies and their own sort of footsteps to measure along. I think it's this rather sweet little picture in your mind of spiders measuring how big their web is and counting back to the middle of it so they can actually get the central point. And uh, then they drop a sort of plumb line. We're using themselves, kind of, they'll let themselves down like a, um, uh, like, um, what do you call it when you go down a cliff? Abseiler, thank you. They abseil down that line to kind of make a Y shape. And that is basically the scaffolding, which they then sort of fill in with different patterns and it's, that's how they do it. So it's, um, it's all rather lovely. It's intriguing. Um, and who would have thought that's how they did it? Now, um, Dave in Bradwell doesn't believe our story that, that a person put their head in the microwave. Um, I can tell you for absolute gospel, I read it in a certain newspaper called The Sun. So it must be true. And it was about five or ten years ago. And he says they don't come on with the, when the door is open. That's true, but there are that's done by having a switch. And if the switch is broken, then there's every possibility it could work. And some of the older ones probably didn't. It could be a bit like, if you're clever, you can figure out how to keep turn off the light in your fridge by pressing the button instead of closing the door. So, you know, you could just maybe press a button in your microwave and it it goes on. So, Dave, Mm. I didn't embellish that story. It's absolutely true. Someone did do that and it is very bad for you because it will create hot spots inside your brain and you will end up with explosions going on inside your head because your brain can't expand because the skull is in the way. Cool. I've also got a question here for you, Chris, from Georgina Allen. Um, she says she's been suffering from lethargy as the daylight gets shorter and shorter and shorter, and the, especially this year because we hardly had a summer at all. Um, and she's been trying to find out, she's been thinking about buying a light box to try and kind of zap her um, eyes and try and make her think that it's the summer so she feels happier. And she's seen lots of different types, high power, low power, blue light, green light, all of them trying to tell, tell you that you're, they're better better, safer, faster than all the others. But is there any research on this and do they actually work? There's lots of research on it and light boxes really do work because some people have seasonal affective disorder. It's a real entity. We think it has a genetic basis and this is where people feel the urge almost I want to hibernate as soon as you go into winter. As soon as the days start to get shorter, you don't get enough sun exposure or if you have to work nights, it can make you feel really quite nasty and quite depressed. And for people who have this, it can be quite disabling. And so scientists have found that if you get a light box which gives you light of a nice bright light box and you get lots and lots of light in the morning morning seems to be quite important it seems to make people feel better what's the physiological basis for it well you have a body clock this is in the part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the part of your brain called your hypothalamus this is your body clock it's got about 5,000 nerve cells that work like a genetic domino effect so one gene turns on a second gene which turns on a third gene and that turns on a fourth gene and that turns off the first gene again and the whole thing goes around in a circle That's how it keeps time. But it needs to be able to reset itself because if you go abroad, go to America or something on an aeroplane, you get jet lagged and you do for a little while, but then it resets. And recently, in the last four or five years, scientists have found there's a population of nerve cells in your eye which see light, which is at the blue end of the spectrum. And they don't actually show your brain what they're seeing. They just tell your body clock what they're seeing. And so they tell the body clock when it's bright and when it's dark. And by doing that, they can reset your body clock and they keep your keep your body clock in time and so by shining this extra light on you scientists think that's how you can rescue your body clock if you need to helen sounds good i think i need one of those to wake me up in the mornings that's my problems it's uh it's uh that it, i need that sunshine pouring in through the window otherwise i just don't wake up but uh, maybe i should get myself a light anyway now we have a new or feature. an alarm clock 
No, because then I feel dreadful as well. I need to be woke up gent- woken up gently. Anyway, enough about my sleeping habits. <laughs> um, now we have a new feature on the Naked Scientist. Each month, with each month, with the help of correspondent Chris Valance, we'll be taking a look at the exciting new developments in the world of technology. This month, he joined us to talk about the newly emerging field of machinima. This is where people use computer games to make movies of their own. They use the design features built into the action games to edit the scenery and use the game well-known characters to tell a story of their own and uh, which they can record and distribute over the internet it sounds really weird and wacky but actually it's really big business yes everything is coming together as planned and these fools still have no idea once the young one gets his sword there will be no stopping us What we just heard is a little clip of uh, machinima. Now, that's uh, the word itself is a contraction of machine cinema, and that kind of tells you what it's all about. If you think about puppetry, well, this is these are films made, but instead of using physical puppets, what you use are the characters in computer games. So instead of picking up Big Bird or whatever the puppet of choice is, Groucho, you go and turn on your Xbox or your PlayStation and use the characters in the game. Now, what we heard there was a clip from perhaps the, one of the best known machinima film series it's red versus blue it's based on uh, the game halo and it has become incredibly popular as many of these games have and we're starting to see them influence the mainstream we're starting to see filmmakers and advertisers pick up on this stuff as well which is why this weekend at de montfort university as this program is going out europe's first festival of machinima bringing together filmmakers and people interested in this technology from all over europe I spoke to Professor Andrew Huggill, who is director of the Institute of Creative Technologies at De Montfort University, and I asked him why machinima wasn't just an updated form of puppetry or physical theatre. It's got elements of both of those, um, and uh, of course it's got elements of animation and cinema. What's unique is that it's user-generated content. It's empowering people or enabling people to create original work fairly easily, and they've got quite a range of resources available to them, such as, you know, the ability to use camera angles, render buildings at any time of day or night uh, with ease, create virtual environments and so on. So I I think it just offers up a a portfolio of possibilities. Mm, So Andrew Huggill seems pretty convinced as to its worth, but to be honest, Chris, it sounds to me a little bit geeky or anoraki. Do do you think this is really going to catch on and be popular? Well, I think the um, examples there from advertising are perhaps the clearest there are actually now starting to emerge machinima-type commercials. In the States, recently aired during the uh, American football games, a Toyota commercial that was based on World of Warcraft. We had World of Warcraft characters, and one of them suddenly pops up, and he's got a brand-new Toyota truck, and he goes off and he defeats the uh, boss baddie at the end of the level with his uh, amazing magic pickup. That kind of thing is definitely becoming mainstream. Now, what's different about machinima, of course, is that it's it's actually live. (laughs) The the character are manipulated and filmed you know without animation without that careful step-by-step process it's much more like puppetry in that sense and do you actually see a sort of convergence between what's happening in the gaming world then and the film world is this an attempt really to 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 maximize the commercial potential because you can get one thing feeding off the other if we go back to red versus blue we just had the new version of halo out to uh, to uh, much excitement in the gaming world obviously red versus blue is based on Halo. So how does the fact that there's a new version of the game affect the films? Well, that's a question I put to Jason Saldana of Rooster Teeth, uh, the company that produced Red vs. Blue. 
it's good. I mean, it, it makes us figure out a way to do it. It's, it's fun to do. And then we also have fun playing the game. Like with, with, uh, with Halo 3, I don't think I stopped playing it since it came out. I think the same could be said for all of the guys that, that we work with. And is this a full-time job for you now? Yes, it is. How many people do you, do you know of who make their living doing uh, machinima? Probably just the six of us. But it must be fun on mortgage applications, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. Trying to explain to people what I do. Or the other day I went to the dentist and uh, they asked me what I did for work and it took me like 20 minutes to tell them. <laughs> so, it's, you know, it can be complicated sometimes. So you heard from Jason there. Well, he's actually making a living out of machinima. Okay, there are only a few people in the world who can claim that, but that does suggest that it is starting to creep its way into, well, you know, the big commercial sphere. But what do people think of the potential for this kind of technology? There, there must be manifold sort of spin-offs that you could do with this kind of thing. Well, there are. Now, I don't know how much of an 80s kid you are, but do you remember the Human League? Do you remember Heaven 17? Well, if you do, you'll know who Martin Ware is. He was a member of all those bands. He's now part of a group called The Illustrious Company that are working with 3D soundscapes. I spoke to Martin and asked him how he saw the future of machinima developing. Well, I'm very interested in, in this new form of narrative. All the time, the barriers between the virtual and the real are becoming broken down. And I think Duran Duran have already done a full-scale concert in Second Life. I mean, that's not quite the same as Machinima, but it is related in a sense. For instance, The Gorillas is an animated version of a band. I mean, it's a kind of art conceit in a way. And throughout my career as a musician and producer, I've always been interested in, in things that relate to um, painting in the old Phil Spector way of conceptualizing stuff. Um, you know, like mini symphonies in four minutes. Uh, I think this is potentially the 21st century version of that from a musical point of view. So I think that's quite a nice idea there, the idea of a, a live performance, both of music and of a uh, virtual um, video, if you like, uh, produced in a machinima-style way, perhaps when uh, Mick Jagger gets just that little bit too creaky to finally make his way onto the stage. He'll consider replacing himself with a, uh, a character from Halo 3. Well, that sounds pretty good. The Rolling Stones could carry on for another 5,000 years. Thank you very much, Chris, for joining us this month to bring us up to speed on the art of machinima, which, apart from being hard to understand, is also almost impossible to say. We'll look forward to joining you again next month for another update on what's hot from the world of technology. Look forward to it. Yeah, so thank you very much, Chris Valance. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris, Dr Helen and Dr Dave. It's our science Q&A show. If you have any questions for us, email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. And Ken, you're live on The Naked Scientists. Hello. Hello. Um, my, my, my dad used to keep a lot of chickens, and I've always wondered why the same chickens lay eggs all the year round when most birds are seasonal. Also, why they haven't got blood spots in them like I presume most eggs have. Um, well, it's actually all to do with, because it's a farm animal, they've been selectively bred for thousands of years. And originally, if, in fact, if you get the very old breeds of chicken, they are seasonal. They were one of the first ones to be domesticated, I think, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, I mean, it's thousands of years people have been domesticating it's a chickens. It's four or five thousand years, I think. And they've, every generation they've been picking the chickens which lay the, the most eggs and then grow, then trying to breed from those chickens. And so slowly, after generation after generation after generation, the period at which they lay eggs for is longer and longer and longer until, I'm not sure, probably in the last 100, 200 years, they got to the point where they had chickens which would lay, lay eggs all year round. 
and so now chickens will lay eggs all year round. But I used to keep chickens as a kid, and they would lay a lot more in the spring than the rest of the year. They'd lay in the rest of the year, but in the spring you get two or three times more eggs for the same number of chickens as you would do in the winter. Lifetime egg production of a chicken is about 300 eggs, so the lifetime productive time is about one year. So I hope that clears that one up for you, Ken. Yeah, thanks very much. It was a good question, though. In in relation to your blood spots question, lots of people chuck away eggs with, with they've got blood spots in because they think they've been fertilised but there's more than one reason why you can have a blood spot in an egg and sometimes you get a blood spot in an egg because as the egg is being formed in the oviduct which is the part of the chicken that makes the egg sometimes you can get a tear in the tissue or a little bit of damage, a leak from a blood vessel and it squirts a little bit of the chicken's blood into the egg and it just makes this red spot, it's not harmful, it doesn't mean it's been fertilised, it's just a bit of blood so that's why you have blood spots Thank you. That's all right. Thanks for having, yeah, thanks thanks for, thanks for, thanks for having yeah. us in your ears and in your in your living yeah. room. Yeah. Cheers, Ken. It's Ken. He's in Hockley. Got a quick question for you here, Dave. Uh, it's from Simon, and he says, um, how much would the level of the oceans rise if we emptied every car, heating system, swimming pool, drinks container, etc., in all the places where we store liquids globally? Um, I don't know. I've been doing some very rough calculations because it, it kind of depends on what you consider storage. Um, I did my calculations assuming that everyone was storing maybe a cubic metre of water because although some people got great big swimming pools, most people maybe only have a lot of tank of water in the loft between four or five. And so that so if you've got uh, sort of 10 billion people, maybe that sort of 100 billion litres of water, uh, 100 billion cubic metres of water in the world um, stored by people personally. Um, and if you work out the area of the Earth, it comes out at about 100,000 billion square metres. So maybe it would rise by a millimetre, something like that. Not very much is the answer. Not and if you think about it, the calculation is that every 20,000 years or so, enough water arrives from outer space to raise the level of the oceans about an inch. So it's minuscule up against that. So, yeah, we're not storing very much water compared to something like an ice sheet. Helen, got a a response on your conundrum of waking up in the morning in a sort of Helen-friendly manner. Um, Keith in Watford says, Dr Helen, how about putting a light in your bedroom that's triggered by a timer and the light then comes on and gently wakes you up? What do you think about that idea? I think that's a great idea. Can I buy one or will somebody make me one? (laughs) There was was an alarm clock that got made by researchers in America and they tethered it to your brainwave patterns because we know that when you are dreaming and at certain points during in the night when you tend to dream and have this rapid eye movement sleep your brain is much more active than when you're in deep sleep and if you wake someone up when they're much when the brain is much more active then they feel much better and they come to much quicker than if you wake them up when they're in a deep sleep so they had this clock which you set the ideal time to wake up it followed your sleep pattern and it woke you up based on your brainwave activity as close to your ideal time as it could so maybe that's the answer i need that and i need a light attached to it that'd be brilliant excellent so now it's time for this week's question of the week diana finds out if some birds really do get more than their fair share of heartbeats. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Question of the Week, where today we're getting a bit flustered about heartbeats. Hello, I'm Mike from Leeds. I've heard that all mammals, except humans, live the same number of heartbeats, about one and a half trillion. However, my blue and gold macaw has a resting heartbeat ten times mine and a life expectancy of 80 years. In other words, roughly equivalent to an elephant or large whale. Why is that? What's different about the avian heart that gives it such a long life? Is the heart of an exotic bird really so special? If I start repeating what everyone else says, will I live longer? Let's see what our expert says. Hello, my name is Neil Forbes. I'm a specialist in bird medicine and the president of the European College of Avian Medicine and Surgery based at Great Western Exotic Vets in Swindon. 
A little bit of explanation. The questioner suggests that his bird's heart rate is 10 times his own. And I think, as in many of these cases, some of these figures are wrong. The resting heart rate of a macaw is published to be 127, rising to 350 when being restrained or upset or in flight. And the recommended lifespan of macaws is 35 to 50 years as opposed to the 80 years which is suggested. Now, taking those figures, that would work out with a heart beat of 4.3 to 6.2 times 10 to the 9, so in fact far less than the 1.5 trillion suggested. So in reality, I think the honest answer is that actually birds have less heartbeats than mammals, and that isn't a surprise at all because the metabolic rate of a bird is significantly faster than that of a mammal, rather similar to a car engine running a bit faster than another car, and as such you would expect them to wear out a bit sooner than a mammal rather than a bit later. It seems that a heart of a parrot isn't so ideal after all. Guess I'll have to stop flapping about and tweeting then. Anyway, next week I'm going to be delving into a chocolate box to test this one. Hi there, my name's Ian Guest. I'm from Sheffield. Despite being a former physics teacher, I got stuck on a problem. Why is it that chocolate chips in cookies melt if you touch them, but they survive the baking process? And after going over the selection box with a fine-tooth comb, I definitely won't be trying to comb this. Hi, my name is John, and I live in Hong Kong. My question is about pubic hair. Some people have said it is to protect your bits, or to keep your bits warm, or to make you smell more attractive to the opposite sex. I want to know why do humans have it, do other animals have it, and what its function is. Do you know why some chocolate melts more than others, and why we have the short and curlies? Let's hope I don't get these two questions mixed up, as it could become a rather sticky mess. Send your answers and new questions to me at questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com. That's all for now. Back to the studio. Thanks, Diana. So birds actually aren't as greedy with their heartbeats at all, but I think we definitely need to do some extensive testing into whether or not chocolate chips in cookies actually melt when you touch them. Then you'd have to eat them, of course, and that would be a shame to waste the food. So what do you think? Email us, question of the week at thenakedscientist.com. Very quickly, Tom in Stowmarket says, why do Jack Russell dogs sometimes run on three legs with a hind leg lifted? I don't know. Do you know, Dave? I don't at all, no. I have no idea. I actually, I think those sort of small dogs are quite odd. I saw one once that uh, when it peed, it had to stand on its front two legs like a little handstand. What's that about? Did it, didn't it get messed up? Didn't it get covered in no, pee? No, no, it kind of project. I don't want to go into it, really, but it was fine. It, it... <laughs> Neither did he, I should think. <laughs> Thanks, Helen, on that thought. So if you know why Jack Russell's run around on three legs, do let us know. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. Now, Dave, um, Paul Batrashat uh, is listening in Stevenage, and he says, where's the safest place in a wood or a forest during a thunderstorm? Well, you might think that standing under a tree is a really good idea because then the tree will get hit by lightning rather than you because it would be a much better path to earth than you are. The problem is if you're near a tree which is hit by lightning, um, the sap tends to heat up, gets really hot, turns to steam and then explodes. The whole tree just goes bang, doesn't it? So you get bits of tree flying off and they can hit you and they can do you more damage yeah. than, than it, possibly even than being hit by lightning. And it's, it's but up. also the tree's behaving as a wonderful lightning conductor and this is raising the potential, the electrical potential of the ground around the tree and so animals like cows that have very long bodies and horses are sometimes found dead in fields because the electricity flows over the ground and it's easier to go up the cow's front legs along its body and down its back legs and kill it in the process 
than it is to go across the ground, or at least some of the electricity does. So you could still get taken down by electricity spreading away across the forest floor, couldn't you? Yeah, I once had a dog that had a big problem with that. Um, we're near an electric <laughs> fence with a <laughs> we're near an electric fence with a dodgy earth, and she was standing by the electric fence. And because her feet were a lot closer to the electric fence than her front feet were than her back feet, she's getting current going through, and she just kept that stood there jumping, looking really uncomfortable until we managed to move her away from the electric. You fence. did have an interesting childhood, didn't you, Dave? Uh, Andy on the A12 says back when he was 19, he lived behind a bus depot, reversing at the same time in the morning with a warning beep. That was the buses, of course, and to this day, an alarm alarm beeps will not wake him up. He's kind of learned not to, so maybe, Helen, there's a lesson in that for you with your waking up problem. Move to a a depot. I used to live next to the bit where they took the bins for recycling, and that was just so noisy in the mornings. That's it. Now, uh, we promised you earlier we were going to show you a way of detecting the world's magnetic field, so Dave, take it away. So what you need for this, you need a reasonable bowl. It's easier if it's got a flat bottom. Um, Some water, so put a couple of inches of water in the bowl i'll just do that now um and so you've got a bowl of water you'll need a needle or a pin um a magnet and something that floats i've got some of that soft flexible packaging foam so i'll just so what you want to do is get a piece of that which will float your needle on nicely so i'll just tear that off gently so i've got enough packaging foam so i can float the needle in the center then you want to take your uh, magnet. Um, you don't want to use the magnets, um, the flexible ones you get on fridges, but the, sol- the solid lumps that you get on fridges will work fine. Now you want to stroke your needle. So you stroke it from one end to the other several times. But so don't- you've got the magnet against the needle and you're going from the cotton threading through end towards the pointy bit. Yeah, don't go back again. Keep going in the same direction so without moving the, end, the magnet. Lift it off. Come back again. Keep stroking. Okay. Pretend it's a nice cat or something keep stroking in one direction stroking back will always annoy cats and needles it would appear okay so you've got your mag- uh, your um, needle you then want to float it in the center of the water on your piece of polystyrene or something with any luck it then over a few seconds it will turn itself round and point north south said so what, what dave's got a big pyrex dish in the center of the desk and it's about half full of water there's a lump of polystyrene now floating around in the water with this needle on it, and the needle has actually swung round. So how do we know that you're not cheating us and that really is north-south? Um, it's, it's, t- it's still moving. Give it a while. Um, I've got a compass next to it, and hopefully w- when it calms down, it'll take a few rotations to, to calm down. It, it'll end up pointing north-south. So let's see the compass. Hang on. Um, it's... Getting there. It's, it's not far off, actually, is it? <laughs> okay. So, what's happened? Well, when you stroke the magnet, uh, okay, the steel in the pin in the needle, yeah, it's just come. It's, yeah, it's, it actually is pointing pretty good north south. It's good. When you the magnet um, will inside, sorry, inside the steel of the pin, um, the steel is made of lots of little tiny magnets within it. And well, what are those tiny magnets? Because you can't say a magnet's made of magnets, because that doesn't okay. answer the question. On, on, the, on the smallest scale, it's actually the electrons orbiting the atoms. And there are more of them orbiting in one direction than the other, so it's like an electric current going around them, so they're an electromagnet. Electric, you may have walked around a wire around a nail as a kid, turns it into a... makes an electromagnet, so you've got a magnet. Now... The, well, normally all these little tiny magnets within the uh, needle are pointing in different directions because if you take a bowl, fill it through a magnet, the north poles will end up sticking to the other south poles and they'll end up going lots of little circles and overall it won't be very magnetised. But if you put a, put a magnetic field on it, they'll all want to line up with that magnetic field. And that's why you stroked in the same direction every time. So what have you pulled all those tiny magnets so they all line up now? Yeah, when you put the magnet on the needle, um, so you've got the north pole, 
pole sticking on the needle. So, um, so all of the magnetic, so the North Pole sitting on the needle, so the South Pole of all little tiny magnets will point towards the magnet. As you pull that across, it means the South Poles keep pointing towards the magnet, they're left along. So the, the end which you leave from will be the opposite pole to the one you stuck it to. So that, that makes a sort of weak magnet. So what about when you buy those really nice, expensive, strong magnets? How do they make those? Um, they have to melt, basically take a material which is very, where the, um, it's very hard to move the minute magnets around. You heat it up so it's almost, so it's very hot, then the magnets can move around more easily. You put it in a big strong magnetic field from an electromagnet, cool it down, and, and then it fixes it, them in position. Freezes it in position. Cool. Right. So, I mean, you, you've made a basic compass on the desk here but if this was 500 years ago people had compasses and ships they didn't have the benefit of a nice strong magnet to magnetize a needle with um so how would they have done it um yeah this um the compass is working because the earth is a magnet so it's lining up with the earth um in the olden days kind of the first people who found this were i think the vikings um if you get some kind of rock called magnetite which actually you dig out of the ground it's already magnetized it's actually magnetized when it was molten um it's affected by the earth's magnetic field all the magnets line up with the earth's magnetic field um so it turns into a magnet you then knock knock a piece of that off and if you hang it on a piece of string it'll line up with the um, north south of the earth and you use it to navigate by Got a question here from Jeff on this subject, Dave. It says, hi, Chris and company. Thank you for your entertaining show. I listen to it on my commute and occasionally when I'm at work and my boss isn't around. Um, I have a question about the reversal of the Earth's magnetic field. I hear that the field polarity has, um, occasionally switches round periodically, so north turns to be somewhere south. I've also heard that the between the switch there's a period of time when there isn't a substantial magnetic field. So my question is, what is the historical estimate of how long it will be before, um, when, when you get this flip round, when there's no, you know, how long does the, the period of no magnetic field last yeah the earth's magnetic field does seem to flip every few hundred thousand years and we're overdue for one at the moment um and though in the old a few few years ago they thought this was quite a long period it would take a few hundred years maybe a few thousand years for it to flip slowly but actually the evidence recently is it's maybe in the region of 10 20 years it's that quick it'll flip over and in the process of it flipping over it doesn't sort of move from north to south pole evenly what tends to happen is the north pole gets weaker and weaker and weaker and sometimes you may get two three or four other north pole north and south poles around the earth in different places they'll move around quite fast and eventually it'll stabilize again um, the other way around so so the compasses will point in exactly the wrong direction after maybe 20 30 years thanks dave helen quick question for you before we finish this is from ed and he says are humans the only animals on earth that secrete mucus from their noses no we're not lots of creatures do have sticky noses and it's all about protecting yourself from those things you might be breathing in basically it's a layer of stickiness to collect dust and particles and more importantly things like viruses that might otherwise invade your delicate mucus membranes so how does the mucus stick stuff oh gosh, just because it's sticky to, i don't know how to you breathe things in and you get a sort of anatomical Dyson up your nose. Oh, that's right, yes. Yeah. So you get a sort of vortex and they get whirled around in your nose and they get flung around to the sides where you've got these sticky walls to your nose and that's sort of where it sticks. And hopefully you blow your nose and get rid of it rather than sort of... Well, I suppose you could swallow it and it goes into your stomach. Because if you go right to London, well. I mean, a day out in London and, and you blow your nose absolutely. and you get home and black. it comes out absolutely Nasty. black and that's just airborne material absolutely. that would be in your lungs if it yes. weren't for mucus. So that's good. Okay. Well, thank you very much for listening to us this week. It's been a great pleasure to have Naked Scientist Dave and Helen with with me this week and uh, also to our production team, Ben and Mira and Diana O'Carroll. Next week, we're exploring the origins of the universe and what the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, can tell us about how all of the matter came to be. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information... Look us up online at nakedscientists.com.
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.